You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. And in this episode, where I am once again joined by Melissa Cantor. Hi. Hi. I will be discussing, I'm going to go back to something we discussed actually in episode three, but I'm hoping that now we can approach it with new questions and new ideas. And that is 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch. I've mentioned a few times that 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch are where we find the story of the origin of, of sin, rather the story in which the origin of sin is Adam's sin or Adam himself. And these are reflecting 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch. And these are books that were written really right after the Second Temple's destruction. They're actually reacting, particularly 4th Ezra is reacting to the destruction of the, of the Second Temple. And so let me, let me say a little bit about the books. And also let me refer you to episode three, in which I really talk about where does the idea that sin originated with Adam, where do we see it in Second Temple literature? And where do we see it in Fourth Ezra and Second Baruch? And the answer is we almost never see it. And we mentioned this when we talked about Ben Sira a couple of episodes ago, that Ben Sira does have a little kind of a, a verse that reflects this idea you know, from women from a woman was the beginning of sin, and he seems to be at least hinting to the sin of Eve and giving the fruit to Adam. But it's just a hint. He doesn't really delve into it. It's not the way he explains the origin of sin at all. And in fact, what we see much more of is we see the myth of the watchers, which I've already discussed in depth. We see this idea of an evil inclination, but not necessarily linking it to anything that Adam did. And if you recall from the very beginning in our very first episode, we actually looked at the story of Adam and Eve, and we saw that really it's not about the origin of sin, at least not if we just read the plain text. It's really about the origin of being a human being with all that that entails. In other words, there's painful childbirth. You have to work the soil. There are things that are painful about being a human being that separates human beings from animals. And this is kind of the beginning of the separation between humans and animals through knowledge. And of course, this is the first act of disobedience against God. And as such, it would be appropriate to see it as the first sin. However, is this the origin of sin? Not really. Is it the origin of death in the Bible? Possibly, even though that's kind of, it's it's a bit of a, a, a bit of a stretch. But I refer you once again to the first episode to kind of approach that. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch. Uh, we're going to look at these books and we're going to look at, first of all, what they are saying about the evil inclination. Because remember, this is our topic now in this part of the series, what they say about the internal desire to sin, and also what they say about the role of the law, the role of the Torah in fighting this internal inclination. And this, again, is an idea that we've mentioned before, and it's an idea that I've devoted serious time to, but it's, it's worth repeating because it's such a prominent idea in Second Temple texts. Fourth Ezra, let's start with Fourth Ezra. Fourth Ezra was written very soon after the destruction of the Second Temple, and it's dated to approximately 81 to 96 CE. So the Temple was destroyed about 70 CE, and this is dated from 81 to 96. That's based on uh, an analysis of the Eagle Vision in chapters 11 to 12. 
Fourth Ezra is a very unusual book, and it has uh, different sections that have engendered a tremendous amount of discussion. I don't have time to really delve into the different sections of Fourth Ezra here, but I will say that it's usually categorized as an apocalypse. In other words, it's, it's talking going to talk about the time to come. It was apparently composed in Hebrew, but we only have it in secondary or even tertiary, in other words, third-level translations of the Greek translation of the Hebrew original. So most most scholars, though, even though it has different parts, for example, the Eagle Vision, most scholars seem to consider it to be a unified work, one a single a single work. Fourth Ezra has seven episodes, and their vision. The first three visions are a series of dialogues between Ezra and an angel who's been sent to answer his questions. Now, who is Ezra in Fourth Ezra? Ezra in Fourth Ezra is supposed to be. The Ezra that we're familiar with from Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Ezra from the beginning of the Second Temple period, right? And in the way Fourth Ezra sets up the story, that Ezra is around during the destruction of the First Temple. And he has these visions after he asks all these questions of what he's struggling with in terms of the destruction of the First Temple, namely the Jews didn't deserve it. Namely, why did this happen? Now, realize this was not, this book was, and I always have to repeat this whenever I talk about a book that is written under a false name, but seems to be biblical. This book was not written by Ezra. It's not contemporaneous with Ezra. It is written as if it is Ezra who's speaking. It is not Ezra who's speaking because it's written after the second temple period. And it's fairly clearly written after the second temple's destruction. And of course, also it would be very weird for Ezra to have lived so long that he would be an adult during the destruction of the first temple and then still be around to restore, to be part of the restoration. So no, it's not Ezra. Okay. But it's written in the name of Ezra and Ezra is reacting in this book to the destruction of the second temple. Why is it fourth Ezra? Right. I said, well, where, what are the first three? And so the first one, first Ezra is Ezra. It's the book of Ezra. Second Ezra is the book of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah. Third Ezra are the additions to those books that are found in the Septuagint. And this is fourth Ezra. <laughs> and this book is fourth Ezra. It's actually part of the Catholic Bible, which is unusual for something that we commonly call a part of the Pseudepigrapha, and is known sometimes as second Esdras. But this is complicated as I'm going to get right now. So we're talking about fourth Ezra. So Ezra and fourth Ezra is dealing with the pain of the destruction. And it's the narrative starts, the story starts 30 years after the destruction of the first temple. And Ezra asks guys, why have the Israelites been punished so severely for their sins while their Babylonian conquerors were spared? In other words, they're saying, okay, so we sinned. We know we sinned, but they sinned even worse and they're doing great. And we were all punished. But he doesn't stop there. He actually presents the whole problem of what he calls the evil heart, which is the evil inclination, right? He says, all human generations from the time of Adam have been sinners, with only a few exceptions like Noah, Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and David, David. But every other generation has been sinners. And there have only been a few people who've managed to not be sinners. We're going to see a similar idea when we look at the Damascus document, which, of course, is dated much earlier than 4th Ezra. And what's really tragic from Ezra's point of view in this book is that not only is every generation sinners, but even when 
we got the law at Sinai, it wasn't enough. He says, and I'm reading from 4th Ezra 3. The book actually starts with chapter 3. I'm not going to say anything beyond that. It starts with chapter 3. Just take it from me. And I'm reading from chapter 3, uh, verse 20 to 22. Yet you did not take away from them their evil heart, so that the Torah might bring forth fruit in them. For the first Adam, burdened with an evil heart, transgressed and was overcome, as were also all who were descended from him. Thus the disease became permanent. The Torah was in the people's heart along with the evil root. But what was good departed, and the evil remained. This is the tragic state of humankind, right? And it's the tragic state of Jews, or let's say Israelites, despite the fact that they were given the Torah, because the Torah did not actually remove the evil heart, namely the evil inclination. Now, if you think about what we were talking about in previous episodes, this is much closer to Philo's approach, where Philo sees this very kind of pessimistic view of humankind, whereas it's not quite, we haven't heard yet that their free will was actually taken away. But it seems pretty close to it. It seems like there's such a strong inclination to sin that people are almost doomed. And in fact, Ezra, and and if we read this a little bit more closely, okay, he says, for the first Adam, listen closely, for the first Adam, burdened with an evil heart, transgressed and was overcome, as were also all who were descended from him. So in this passage, is the evil heart because Adam sinned? No, Adam sinned because of his evil heart. In other words, the evil heart is part of the human condition. Adam sinned because of it, and Adam passed it down to all his descendants. However, it wasn't because of some action of Adam's. So he doesn't actually say, where is the evil heart from? He comes pretty close to implying that it's from God, but he doesn't actually say, he just says, for the first Adam, burdened with an evil heart. Like he just happens to have an evil heart. Can you clarify again, The difference between evil heart and evil inclination? Does the evil heart cause the inclination to be evil? That's a really good question. And there are places where it seems, there actually seems, I'm going to talk about it just a bit, the idea of whether there are different stages. There's an evil root, an evil heart. But in general, and and part of this is is in my personal approach to these things, I usually say... I usually kind of group terminology together. So I'm saying when when he says the evil heart, what is he describing? He's describing a human inclination to sin. He's really describing an evil inclination. He's calling it the evil heart. Yes. Yes. It seems to me. Now, we have it, of course, in the Latin translation from the Greek. Sacor malum or malignum is the term evil heart. And that's a phrase that, that repeats. So the point is that it wasn't removed from the Israelites even when they received God's law. So that's why they, like Adam before them, sinned and were exiled. Okay, so what's interesting, of course, and we've mentioned this before, is that he's reacting to the idea that law should be enough to help you against your evil inclination. And he's saying the law isn't enough. The law wasn't enough. The law remained, the Torah was in the people's heart along with the evil root, but what was good departed and the evil remained. Right? It reminds me of Jekyll and Hyde, if you remember the setup of Jekyll and Hyde, right? That Dr. Jekyll, he wants to separate out the evil and the good, so he'll be completely good, and the evil will be rooted out, on, and, it'll be, and it'll be separate from him. And instead, what he does is he roots out the evil, but he's still a mix, right? So great, you have all this pure evil, Hyde, and Dr. Jekyll is still not like the most righteous thing that ever existed. He's still got the mix. And this is kind of the idea is that when you have good and evil mix, it's the good that kind of decays and the evil stays, is this uh, idea that, that Ezra seems to be kind of pessimistically repeating. So the idea is that the law does not actually remove the evil root, kind of the disease that is sin. 
And we're going to see similar language being used in second table prayer for, for sin. That's kind of this, this disease that takes root in a person in terms of the inclination to sin. However, whereas in second temple prayers, and we've already heard some of them, because we've heard, if you recall, when I was talking about the watchers, and we had someone saying, the bastard spirits are in me, and they're fighting with the laws of the Torah that are in me. And this idea that I have the laws of the Torah, and they fight with my desire to sin. Whether they're describing it in demonic terms, or they're describing it in terms of an evil inclination, the laws of the Torah that are within me are supposed to be fighting, be fighting these desires. And Ezra is saying here, that is not enough. And he does he does talk about the law. He says, For behold, I sow my law in you, and it shall bring forth fruit in you, and you shall be glorified through it forever. But Ezra follows this quotation of God's words, quotation in quotes, with saying that this wasn't enough. So again, he quotes God saying, For behold, I sow my law in you, and it shall bring forth fruit in you, and you shall be glorified through it forever. And Ezra says, but though our fathers received the law, they did not keep it and did not observe the statute. So it wasn't enough, right? My Christian listeners will remember in Romans 5.20 and in 7, uh, 7 to 13, Paul has this, uh, he also is arguing with this idea that the giving of the law combats the desire to sin. And he says, on the contrary, we wouldn't have sin without the law. I, I think he's arguing against the same idea. I think there's a very common idea that the law fights sin. And in Ezra, for Ezra, it's not enough. It just isn't enough. And what happens is that Ezra gets into an argument with an angel because Ezra is saying, I don't understand. I don't understand why we deserve this punishment. The fate of human beings are so tragic. It's so tragic that we're we're doomed. And he really, really does see it as doom. He's like, we can't help but sin. And then we can't help but be punished for a sin. And we are doomed, right? So what's interesting is that the angel Uriel, who comes down to Ezra, respond to his questions. He acknowledges that there is an evil inclination, okay? There is never an argument in the book of fourth Ezra that there is no evil inclination. They all take the pessimistic view, which we saw on a philosophical level, we saw it with Philo. They all take the pessimistic point of view that there is in fact an evil inclination, okay? So the angel says in 4th Ezra uh, 4, chapter 4, verse 30, for a grain of evil seed was sown in Adam's heart from the beginning and how much fruit of ungodliness it has produced until now and will produce until the time of threshing comes. In other words, there's this grain of evil seed, this evil inclination was sown in Adam's heart from the beginning. Again, not necessarily as a result of the sin, but it was there from the beginning. And because of that, there's so much sin that will still inevitably happen. At the same time, the angel promises to answer Ezra's plea. He's going to tell Ezra, he says, I will reveal quote, why the heart is evil, end quote. In other words, he processed Ezra, I will tell you why, why you have an evil inclination, why people have an evil inclination. And one assumes that he's actually going to answer that, the question that's behind that question, which is why in the world would God create a person with an evil inclination? And that's the real question that's, that's bothering us with an evil inclination. Not just why do I have this, but why would God allow it? So what the angel says is, your understanding has utterly failed regarding this world. And do you think you can comprehend the way of the Most High? Then I said, yes, my Lord. And he replied to me, I have been sent to show you three ways and to put before you three problems. If you can solve one of them for me, then I will show you the way you desire to see and will teach you why the heart is evil. I said, speak, my Lord. And he said to me, 
Go, weigh for me the weight of fire, or measure for me a blast of wind, or call back for me the day that is past. I answered and said, Who of those that have been born can do that, that you should ask me about such things? And essentially, the idea is, this is a mystery. You can't possibly fathom it. It's a divine mystery. And, you know, tough. You're never going to understand it. And in fact, there's a recognition as the um, dialogue continues that in fact, people are in this situation where they have the inevitable desire to sin and it's going to end in trouble before, of course, the apocalypse where the righteous will not only be rewarded, but evil one assumes will be will be destroyed. However, the actual, the, the situation of humankind in present is really terrible. He answered me, this is the angel, and said, if you are alive, you will see, and if you live long, you will often marvel because the age is hurrying swiftly to its end. This is, of course, the promised apocalypse. It will not be able to bring the things that have been promised to the righteous in their appointed times because this age is full of sadness and infirmities. For the evil about which you ask me has been sown, but the harvest of it has not yet come. If therefore that which has been sown is not reaped, and if the place where the evil has been sown does not pass away, the field where the good has been sown will not come. For a grain of evil seed was sown in Adam's heart from the beginning, and how much ungodliness it has produced until now, and will produce until the time of threshing comes." Consider now for yourself how much fruit of ungodliness a grain of evil seed has produced. When heads of grain without numbers are sown, how great a threshing floor they will fill. In other words, there's so many terrible things that have been done. The punishment is going to be tremendous. And the idea is that that's what has to be done before there can be, can be goodness, can be righteousness and reward for the righteous. However, for Ezra in the present, and this is significant, in 4th Ezra, for Ezra in the present, this isn't much of a comfort because he's dealing with people who live in the present. He is living in the present. And in fact, in the present, people sin and people suffer. And he repeats this idea. While the angel says in, in chapter 7, Ezra says, if everyone alive is burdened and defiled with wickedness, and there's no possibility of being otherwise, why is there judgment of these wayward sinners after death? In other words, there shouldn't be any judgment of sinners if they can't help sinning. And the angel responds with the typical response that would make sense during the Second Temple period, that humans have understanding and were given laws, and in spite of this, they sinned. So they're responsible. In other words, not only using let's Ben Sira's logic, they have their own choice, right? They have understanding. They were also given laws, which is that basic idea that laws fight sin. Therefore, they should have been able to not sin. However, they did sin, and therefore, they will be punished. But from the, from the perspective of Ezra and 4th Ezra, the poor people, they have this inevitably tremendously strong evil inclination. The law isn't enough to stop it. And then when they do sin, they're punished. Now, realize this is a reaction. This book was written in reaction to the destruction. This is a book that's written in trying to make sense of what Jews who were coming out of the destruction of the Second Temple saw as a tragedy that could not be understood. And this kind of cycle of sin and evil would explain the destruction of the temple. And at the same time, what Ezra is finally, what kind of 
creates the change in Ezra is first of all, sympathy for the fallen Jerusalem, but also this hope of a better, you know, better future in the end time. According to Ezra, it's true that humans by nature sin, but would he agree that humans also have the ability to fight against it and do right? Like the angel is saying, like if we were given the inclination to sin, then weren't we also given the ability to fight against it? Right. So that's exactly what the angel is saying to him. Do I think that in the book, in the book, Ezra almost seems to not be saying that. In other words, if you were actually to take Ezra as a character out of the book, I can't believe that he wouldn't say, I mean, he does say that there were people who were righteous, right? Noah was righteous. Abraham was righteous. He does recognize that there are people who are righteous. At the same time, what he's bemoaning, the way he talks, it's almost like people don't have, it's not that people don't have free will, but their free will isn't strong enough to resist the inclination to sin, which is so strong and so pervasive. And which he, in fact, does cite, he does cite Adam as a source of this impulse, of this impulse to evil. How far does he take it? How much can humans get away with, with that point of view? Okay, so in Ezra, you have Ezra and you have the angel that's arguing with him, right? And so Ezra seems to be saying that humans essentially will always sin. But the perspective of the, of the angel, though, humans can always avoid sin. So even though the vast majority of humans have not avoided sin, that doesn't prove anything, the angels, the, the angels essentially saying. And in fact, in Ezra, at the very end of the book, in the epilogue of the book, it, Ezra actually says that humans can avoid sin. That's the very, 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 very end, at the very end. But according to the angel's account, even though the angel says that humans can absolutely avoid sin, right? It's up to them. They can absolutely avoid sin. He describes even the righteous as engaged in a long struggle against their innate impulse to sin, their innate impulse to evil. So nothing's Um, our fault? According to him? No, no, it's your fault. But the angel, so even from, but the angel, especially from the angel's point of view, the angel's point of view, it's really our fault. But even the righteous are involved in a struggle that ends only with death. And I'm, I'm, this is in chapter, so the end, toward the end of chapter seven. So from the angel's point of view, even from the angel's point of view, to avoid sin is a lifelong struggle, but it's a goal that you can achieve. Right. This actually reminds me of the Tanya, the Rev. Shneir Zalman Miliadi, who wrote the Tanya, which is a basic Hasidic work, which of course is becomes the basis of of Lubavitch uh, Hasidism. But not only it's considered a major and major major Hasidic work, and there he describes what's called the Benoni, the kind of medium person. But a Benoni in the Tanya is someone who has never sinned in thought, word, or deed, and will never sin. That's the Benoni, that's the, that's the middle guy. And he is involved in a lifelong struggle. He is described as being involved in a never-ending, lifelong struggle. And the only time he ever gets a break from the struggle is when he is in the middle of either Shema, saying Shema, or saying, I believe, or saying Shmon Esrei, saying the, the Amida prayer. So there's those are the two times that that person, that righteous person, gets a break from the constant struggle against sin in the Tanya. And by the way, he's not called a righteous person in Tanya because he hasn't completely gotten rid of his animal soul or even partially gotten rid of his animal soul. So he's just a regular guy who's never sinned. <laughs> but, but it's 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 for me. I, I grew up with the Tanya, so it's I, I can't. It's hard, you know, not to not to think of that that constant struggle when I read the much earlier constant struggle that's being talked about in Fourth Ezra, the constant struggle against the desire to sin. 
And the choice that humans have not made, though, is described by the angel in 4th Ezra 7, 21 to 24. He says, for God strictly commanded those who came into the world when they came, what they should do to live and what they should observe to avoid punishment. Nevertheless, they were not obedient and spoke against him. They devised themselves vain thoughts and proposed themselves wicked frauds. They even declared that the Most High does not exist. And they ignored his ways. They scorned his law and denied his covenants. They've been unfaithful to his statutes and have not performed his works. So according to the angel, the transmission of God's commandments, which should have been enough to compel humans to honor them, were not enough in, in this kind of, in this very ironic way that humans, in their tremendous lack of faith, actually broke these commandments and thereby, of course, multiplied their sin instead of using these commandments against their desire to sin. So the angel fourth Ezra, while he doesn't deny that there's an innate evil heart, he says the humans are responsible for sin because they've been given both law and reason. He says, for this reason, therefore, those who dwell on earth shall be tormented. Because though they had understanding, they committed iniquity. And though they received the commandments, they did not keep them. And though they obtained the law, they dealt unfaithfully with what they received. Okay, so in fact, and in fact, we have a similar idea in 4th Maccabees. There's a dispute about when 4th Maccabees was written. So it's either uh, shortly before the destruction or it's well after, like about 50 years after the destruction. But there's a similar idea, says in 4th Maccabees, now when God fashioned human beings, he implanted in them their passions and habits. But at the same time, he enthroned the mind among the senses as a sacred governor over them all. And to this mind, he gave the law. So it's not just the law that helps you fight the evil inclination. It's the law combined with human reason, human reason together with the law should be enough to resist your evil inclination. Now, in fourth Ezra, Ezra is not immediately affected by the angel's arguments. It's only long after Ezra has had kind of a change of heart in the fourth vision, this chapter, chapters 9 and 10, that he finally accepts the angel's view. So then at the very end of the book, like I was saying, at the very end of the book, he says to the people of Israel, if you then will rule over your minds and discipline your hearts, you shall be kept alive and after death you shall obtain mercy. In other words, you have to use discipline. But that's at the very end of the book, right? The reason that Ezra's had a change of heart is not really very, very well explained. And it seems to be the result of kind of an internal transformation and a revelation as opposed to logic. There's no logical answer for Ezra's pleas. And that shows just what he's dealing with, with which is, again, this, this apparent cycle of having an evil inclination that's inevitable and not having, frankly, the distance that Philo has. For example, when Philo talks about coming kind of an inevitable, inevitable desire to sin, he doesn't see it as part of this cycle of we sin, horrible things happen. We sin, horrible things happen. We can't get out of it because we can't stop sinning. He doesn't see it as this kind of really tragic situation of humankind. He just sees it as kind of the weakness of, seems to see it more as a kind of a, the moral weakness of, of human beings, but not in the same level of tragedy as Fourth Ezra does. Of course, part of that is that Fourth Ezra is kind of a narrative and it's also a plea. And it's also, again, a reaction to the destruction, which was so hard to deal with. And second Baruch, which had, and fourth Ezra does, in fact, several times blame Adam for the sins of humankind, right? In other words, that he, Adam was the beginning of it. Second Baruch, which is written around the same time and has a lot of parallels with fourth Ezra, argues with this idea. And I've, I've mentioned this before in this podcast where he says, I'm quoting second Baruch now. For though Adam sinned first and brought untimely death upon all, also those who were born from him have prepared for themselves the coming torment. 
And also each one of them has chosen for himself glories to come. In other words, it's up to every one of us, despite the fact that you could say, well, Adam, you know, from Adam, uh, Adam he's saying he, from Adam is our sin. And he doesn't say that. He says in, in this passage, rather, in this passage, he says, for though Adam sinned first and brought untimely death upon all, also those who were born from him and prepared for themselves the coming torment. Right. But now as for you, you wicked that now are. Turn to destruction because you will be visited quickly since you previously rejected the understanding of the Most High. So Adam is not the cause except only for his own soul. But each of us has been the Adam of his own soul, which I love quoting. So you've heard it from me before. It's a great line. Each of us is the Adam of our own soul. That despite the fact that you could say, well, my evil inclination is from Adam, you must deal with your own inclination. You have free will. And that's what Second Baruch is emphasizing there, except in a lament that we have, uh, we have a lament in Fourth Ezra. We have a similar lament in Second Baruch, which is which is kind of, oh Adam, what have you done that you've caused sin for everyone? Uh, so those there's those are kind of parallel laments in Fourth Ezra and Second Baruch. But when they're not lamenting, when he's not lamenting in Second Baruch, we do have this idea that going back to if we want to talk about Ben Seer, kind of goes back to that idea, you each have to make your own choice. God may have given you a character. He may have given you an evil inclination. It doesn't matter. You have to make your own choice. So whereas the angel's argument in fourth Ezra, in second Baruch, that's the speaker's argument. And that's, and he's arguing with the idea, which apparently is widespread enough after the, the destruction to require the author of second Baruch to write, no, you can't blame your sins on Adam. Right. So the, why would people want to blame their sins on Adam specifically after the destruction? Again, if we read fourth Ezra, we can understand that the tremendous um, destruction, which doesn't seem to have a good reason, it doesn't seem to be justified. So if we can connect it to some kind of cosmic sin, it, our sins were not so terrible, but there was this cosmic sin in the beginning of time with Adam that we're all paying for. And that is causing all of us to sin. And that's what this great destruction has to do with. Maybe, maybe that's why. But so I've, I've talked about this before. I've talked about fourth Ezra and second Baruch in the context of Adam's sin. And now I'm coming back to them to talk about how they're looking at the evil inclination and the inevitability of the inclination. How is it inevitable? Where fourth Ezra, we can say, is taking Philo to the nth degree, but also making it tragic. Whereas second Baruch, which is fighting with this idea, is taking Ben Sira, the idea that you may have an evil inclination, but you are the Adam of your own soul. It is your choice. I'm just wondering if blaming Adam actually makes it any better, because being punished for somebody else seems to almost make it worse. So from the point of view of Ezra... I always like to, whenever I see a solution like this that seems to create a problem, I always ask, but what does it solve? There's always a reason that someone's come up with the idea or someone wants to believe in this idea because it solves some problem that for them is more prominent in the moment. And I think that when people feel that they're living a national tragedy, it's easier for them to say, this is a national tragedy that is not even connected to something we can point to today. It has to do with something bigger, and that's the only way we can understand this tragedy, even if we're being punished for someone else, right? That's one possible explanation that I can think of, but it's always interesting to me when I look at a solution which seems to create more problems than it solves, say, but what problem does it solve, and why was that such a particular problem 
for those people then. And I think for the people dealing with the destruction, I think one of the things that they wanted to put it in a context of, there's a reason for this, but the reason could not possibly be their own sins from their point of view, which were not great enough to cause such a destruction, or if they were great enough, were outweighed by that of other nations around them who were doing fine or who were actually the conquerors. So how can I understand this? Well, let's put it in the context of a much greater history of sin. And that way we can understand it a little better. And that I think is what they're reaching for. And then of course you have this tragedy, this cycle of tragedy. And the way Fourth Ezra gets out of it is kind of with through a sympathy and through revelation. And I think that's what you're supposed to you're supposed to experience for yourself. You're supposed to kind of experience some kind of revelation, some kind of connection to God that helps you get over it as it were. But while still recognizing the tragedy. And Second Baruch, it's not accepting that, right? Because the author of Second Baruch doesn't want you to blame your sins on Adam. He wants you to take full responsibility for your sins. So thank you for listening. Please leave your comments at understandingsin.com. I love to see your comments. I love to see your responses. And if there's something that you're particularly curious and you want to hear about, let me know because um, I'm open after after we finish the series on evil inclination. I'm probably going to work do some episodes on sin and punishment. But if there's specific topics that people are interested in, I'm happy to consider addressing those as well. So take care and looking forward to speaking with you next time. Bye. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, everyone. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.